Amen. All right, we're in the book of Habakkuk right now. If you'd open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter two. We looked at chapter one last week. Now we're in chapter two. We're gonna look at verses one through 20 of Habakkuk chapter two. The topic, God accuses the nation of Babylon of being constantly drunk on wine and then he pronounces a series of five woes against them. And so the title of our message is The Days of Wine and Woeses. Let's have a, a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our meeting today here in this wonderful place that you've provided for us. In this comfort and surrounded by friends and, and believers, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be made glad and that we would rejoice, Lord, in what you're doing. We want to hear your voice, the still small voice of your spirit as you take the word of God and bring it to our hearts. You're the one who says that you can discern between the soul and the spirit. Get right down into us, Lord, with words of comfort and words of refreshment. Many of us certainly need that today. Actually, all of us do, but some of us more than others, perhaps. Teach us, encourage us, bless us from this text. We wanna learn something about what Habakkuk was going through, but certainly we want it to have application to ourselves in our nation in 2015. Do all these things and more. We expect you to, Lord, and we expect it because of Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Country music knows how to glorify a drunkard. Back in 2011, CMT named the 40 greatest drinking songs of country music. On the list are songs with playful titles like, I'm gonna hire a wino to decorate our home. You ain't much fun since I quit drinking and it's five o'clock somewhere. Number one on the list was Garth Brooks with friends in low places who sings, please don't sing along. Cause I've got friends in low places where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away. Now it might surprise you that God wrote a drinking song. It was for the nation of Babylon, but as is really the case with the abuse of alcohol, it wasn't all fun and games. It's uh, in verse 15 and 16 where we read, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. God's take on drunkenness is a lot more graphic and realistic. Now, drunkenness was, in fact, a characteristic of the Chaldeans who ruled Babylon. Those of you familiar with biblical history will remember that the night Babylon fell to the invading Medo-Persian armies, its kings and its leaders were attending a drunken party. God will use the Chaldeans' lust for drunkenness to describe their seemingly insatiable lust for power, leading to their conquest and cruel treatment of lesser nations for which God will hold them accountable and see them overthrown. Now that's all well and good, but while waiting for God to overthrow Babylon, Habakkuk and his fellow Judeans were going to be subject to them, held captive by them, in exile, in Babylon. How should they live? Well, we're gonna see that the just shall live by his faith, that's verse four. The just, meaning those who have faith in Jesus Christ, are always to live by their faith in every generation, in every country, in every circumstance. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, you live by faith because you've seen the Father, and number two, you live by faith because you've seen the future. 
First of all, in verses one through four, you live by faith because you've seen the Father. Habakkuk was writing in the seventh century BC. He was concerned about his nation, Judah, because its people, the Jews, had abandoned God. They still went to the temple and offered their sacrifices, but they also worshiped idols. And in some cases, they were offering their own babies as human sacrifices. Everywhere he looked, Habakkuk saw violence of one type or another. He wanted God to do something to bring the Jews back to their spiritual senses. God had been doing quite a lot to reach the hearts of his chosen nation. He had sent prophets to Judah, for example. He had allowed the northern kingdom of the Jews, called Israel at the time, to be overrun and taken captive by the Assyrian Empire as a stern warning to Judah that he could do the same to them if they failed to repent. A lot of times we think God is not doing things uh, and, and as if he's um, silent, uh, and that was the complaint certainly of Habakkuk, but God was doing things, and they were visible. It wasn't a secret. He was sending them prophets. He was sending judgment on the northern kingdom. He was sending droughts and famines and various things to warn them to turn from their wicked ways and back to himself. Now God was revealing to Habakkuk that he was definitely preparing to allow the nation of Babylon to overthrow Judah. That was his next move. Now we saw last week from a passage in Jeremiah that God warns all nations, not just Israel, he warns all nations that if they grow wicked, he will intervene in judgment, and he often judges nations by raising up other nations to conquer them. He doesn't intend for those conquering nations to become wicked, and that's the problem with Babylon. They were raised up, and then they grew more and more wicked in their own pride, as we'll see, and then God had to judge them. Now, Habakkuk is understandably disturbed by all this news. He took it seriously, and he assumed the role of a watchman on the walls looking out to see the approach of the invaders. In other words, he believed that God was going to bring Babylon, and he looked for it. And so he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I wonder if Habakkuk went physically up to the wall up to the ramparts. These Old Testament prophets often acted out their prophecies. We might today in a prayer meeting say, Lord, make us watchmen on the walls. We prayed Friday night, had a great time of prayer uh, uh, for uh, Friends at Midnight on Friday night, and I think one or two people mentioned that, you know, about being watchmen, but nobody went up into the tower and was looking out over Hanford, uh, because we mean it metaphorically, but I think probably Habakkuk in the tradition, the great tradition of the Old Testament prophets, went up on the wall and hung out with the guards, kind of like a watchman ride-along program, where he was just hanging out there with them, and they were saying, hey, it's all calm, there's nothing really going on here, why don't you go home? And he says, the Babylonians are coming. And, and, and of course, at that time, the Chaldeans hadn't really taken over Babylon, they weren't a world power yet. And yet Habakkuk is watching for them because he believes the Lord. Habakkuk understood that in light of God's plan to punish and discipline Judah, he would need to proclaim a message, especially to those among the minority of Jews who were following the Lord, the remnant of Jews, giving them spiritual strength to stand in a time when the majority of Jews were sinning. Now, without inflating ourselves and thinking that we're great, don't we feel like that sometimes as Christians? 
as, as if we're in a terrible minority surrounded by a majority in a country that once claimed to be a godly nation. And, and you know, every day you're reading a story about something, uh, some biblical morality that is crumbling around us, and we more and more are in a position like Habakkuk. As I said last week, I don't know if God's going to judge us or not or how that would happen. We're not predicting that. We're praying for revival. But we feel like this small minority, and that's why this book is so important to us. Verse two, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. The vision is the message God was about to give Habakkuk, mostly for the remnant of godly believers who would be affected by the captivity in Babylon. They would suffer the same national disgrace that the majority brought upon Judah, even though they were true and sincere followers of God. And again, keep that in mind in these verses and in this book, it is especially for believers who find themselves caught in awful circumstances, but still want to represent the Lord. He says, make it plain on tablets, and he means just that. Habakkuk was to commit the message to tablets, hopefully an iPad. He was to write it down, to publish it for all, to not just hear, but to read. It says that he may run who reads it. Now, that could mean it was to be in large print, so someone walking by or running by uh, would be able to read it. It's sort of like a freeway sign. You want your freeway signs to be nice and crisp and you know, bold. You want to be able to read them a little while down the road. And so that's one possible meaning. It's more likely that having read it, the message will fuel your spiritual walk in such a way that you yourself become its messenger running swiftly to proclaim it to others and so on. You know those old movies, you know, where the, the paper boys still got the stack of papers, go, extra, extra, read all about it. And there's some huge headline and then people read it and they grab it and they go and tell other people. That's the idea, that this is a message that you're going, that's gonna have to grip you in such a way that you wanna tell the other believers about it uh, because it's so important. Jeremiah, who was contemporary with Habakkuk, said something along these same lines, or rather God said it to him. It's in Jeremiah 12, five, where the Lord says, Jeremiah, if you have run with footmen and they have wearied you, how will you contend with horses? In other words, God was saying, this ministry I've given you of sharing my word, it's going to require endurance. You're gonna feel like you're in a foot race but you're really in a foot race with horses, that's the kind of power I wanna give you as if you would be able to outrun a horse. You're gonna need that kind of spiritual endurance because this message is so important and so profound, you're gonna have to exhaust yourself telling it to others. Now one more verse sets this up before God gives it to his prophet. Verse three, the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now the first thing to note about this verse is the seeming contradiction where God says it tarries, then he says it will not tarry. Well, which is it? Well, this has to do with God's timing and how we experience time as human beings. As will become clear in the remaining verses, God will himself overthrow the Babylonian empire, but not until what he called the end. The end of what? Well, in context, uh, it would be the end of the 70 years of discipline and punishment that he had prepared for Judah. 
Daniel gives us that length of time. God reveals to him that Judah is going to be punished for 70 years in exile in Babylon, and then the end of Babylon will come. Further out in the future, at the end of the Great Tribulation, the book of the Revelation says that Babylon will again have risen to prominence only to finally, ultimately be overthrown by God at the very end. So verse 3 is putting the believing Jews in Judah and believers in all ages on notice that God's plan for history will unfold according to his timing, but in the meantime, at any given moment, those who are godly may experience circumstances that are less than desirable. So God says, hey, this isn't going to wait, it's going to happen, but it might not happen for a while and you're going to experience some things. So how should we then live as God's representatives? Verse 4, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God here draws a contrast between the proud and the just. Think the non-believer versus the believer. The first part, describing the non-believer, should be translated, look at the proud, his soul which is lifted up is not straight or right within him. It's a description of what we would call the natural man, a person who has not surrendered his pride and humbled himself to be saved by the grace of God. And there's a hint in what Habakkuk is told, look at the proud, see his condition uh, in terms of we don't really want to be that guy. Now, yes, we're surrounded by oppression, the wicked seem to have their way, uh, we're, you know, we, we are stressed about that, but we really don't want to be those people. We don't want to be in that power majority because when they die, they're separated from God for all eternity. We're really the people with authority, with the power, with the blessing, and that kind of a thing. And so Habakkuk, so first of all, look at the wicked. They're not right with me. And, and I'm working to get them right with me. So have the right perspective on those who are not saved. And then he says, the just shall live by his faith. And that should read, the justified ones shall live by faith. Do you know how a person is saved? Of course you do. They're saved when they are declared righteous by God on account of their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior and their source of righteousness. When a person trusts Jesus Christ, God sees that person as justified, meaning he sees them just as if they'd never sinned. And so by grace, through faith, I'm drawn to Jesus Christ. I receive his righteousness as he takes my sin, and then God declares me righteous based on the work of Jesus, and I am justified before him. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, I, might, I must pause for a moment to mention how important these few words are, the just shall live by faith. John Walvoord, great Bible commentator, said that not only are they central to the book of Habakkuk, they are the central focus of the entire Bible. This great principle, the just shall live by faith, was the scripture that so inflamed the soul of Martin Luther that it became the foundation and the watchword of the great Reformation. The Apostle Paul quoted these words three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1.17, Paul quoted them with an emphasis on what it means to be justified. In Galatians 3.11, he quoted them in the context of telling the justified ones how to live, comparing and contrasting our life in Christ to legalistic works that have no value. 
And then in Hebrews 10, 38, he quoted them to encourage the justified to go on living by faith despite even the most severe circumstances. And that's their use here in the book of Habakkuk as well. Now, the vision or the message that God gave Habakkuk to proclaim, especially to the believing remnant in Judah, go on living by faith, enduring your terrible circumstances, because despite the Babylonian captivity, God is working all things together for good and will providentially bring history to its prophesied conclusion. As we often mention, we as believers live in between the two comings of Jesus Christ. He came the first time, He offered to establish the promised kingdom on the earth, but he was rejected by the nation of Israel. He wasn't the type of savior. He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. They rejected him, and so the kingdom that was promised them had to be put on hold. Jesus is coming a second time, and he will establish the kingdom, and he'll be received by Jews who survived the great tribulation. We live in between that those two comings, and um, we suffer in many ways, often on account of what non-believers are doing. So, I mean, God could um, deal with all of the wickedness and all of the suffering in the world, which is what people want him to do. You know, people accuse God, God, why are you doing this? Why did you allow that? Why is this happening? God said, here's what's going to happen. I'm gonna resurrect and rapture the church, and then seven years of hell are coming on the earth to turn people's hearts to me, and then I'm gonna come back, and there's not gonna be any chance of those people repenting, and I'll have to separate the sheep from the goats, and the goats, the non-believers, are gonna go into perdition and perish eternally and suffer forever. So God's got a plan, and it's a severe plan because it's a severe problem. And so he waits, his long-suffering waits to pull the trigger on that plan. And while he does, suffering is multiplied. Uh, And so he's going to do something, but in the meantime, we live in difficult times. We are the justified ones who can, in those circumstances, live by faith because we have seen the Father When have we seen the Father? Well, that's something that Philip asked Jesus. This is from John 14. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you shall know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father. And so Jesus said, if you want to know what God the Father is like, you know, people think of God, you might have a picture of God yourself on, you know, as a big white-haired man on a throne. Who knows? Whatever people think about God. If you watch television or go to the movies or read literature, people don't think very well of God. He gets accused of all kinds of things. He's behind all the evil in the world. He could act, but he chooses not to act. He's left us on our own, whatever and ever. And Jesus says, hey, You've got it all wrong. If you want to know what the Father is like, what God the Father is like, all you have to do is look at me. All you have to do is see what I did when I was on the earth, how I acted, how I behaved, what I was all about. What was Jesus all about? Grace and mercy and love and healing and salvation. And so uh, people get confused because they don't understand the situation that the world is in is because of sin, It's human beings who ruin the world. It's God who's working to heal the world and save the world. He said, if you want to know what I'm really like, 
I'm just like Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father. So have we seen the Father? Hebrews chapter one says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. You absolutely can make the argument that we've seen Jesus and therefore we've seen the Father in terms of the revelation of the scriptures, the character, the nature of our gracious and merciful God. Now remember that I said Habakkuk's words were quoted three times in the New Testament, and one of those times is in Hebrews 10.38. Let me read you the words again in Habakkuk. He says, the vision is yet for an appointed time. At the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now then, here's the quote in Hebrews. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by his faith. There's a difference a slight but incredible change. Habakkuk said, it will not tarry. The it is changed in Hebrews to he who is coming will come and not tarry. And so the writer to the Hebrews lets you know that it's all about Jesus Christ at the end in his second coming. The Hebrew believers, the justified ones who were suffering extreme persecution were to see by faith Jesus in his second coming. And that's the word for us today. No matter what you're going through personally right now, no matter what your loved ones are going through, hey, if the Lord doesn't come right now, some of us are gonna die. And some of us are gonna die hard. And it's gonna be sad. And there's gonna be a lot of tears. But you know what? We see Jesus coming. And the eternity that we get to spend with the Lord and with our loved ones far outweighs what we're going through now. So much so that in the book of the Revelation, it says there will be no more tears. No one will have an occasion to even remember their suffering in a way that would bring a tear to their eyes. And so we can and we should live by faith despite circumstances to the contrary because we see Jesus and we thereby see the Father as loving, as gracious, as merciful despite what we must sometimes endure as his long-suffering waits for sinners to repent. Now you also live by faith because you've seen the future. Obviously that's a thread that runs through all of this but mostly in verses five through 20. This is a series of five woes. A woe is a type of song called a lament which would usually be a sad funeral song but these are sung against Babylon predicting its overthrow. It's kind of ironic. Uh, the Jews who were going to go into captivity into Babylon would eventually sing a series of laments over Babylon's fall uh, and uh, actually it would be kind of a celebratory thing for them. And so God is letting Babylon know what's in store. God rose up, uh, raised up the Babylonian nation to do his will, but they exceeded the boundaries that he had set. They became cruel, merciless, wicked. We'll see in a minute, Nebuchadnezzar, their king, was lifted up in pride against God and so God brought them down as well. Now these laments had their immediate fulfillment when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. 
They have their ultimate fulfillment when at the end of the seven-year great tribulation, God destroys a future revived Babylon. Talking about that Babylon in Revelation 17, we read, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Once a drunk, always a drunk, I guess, if you're Babylon. And so verse five, indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. He does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Now, these verses are not about alcohol or alcohol abuse. It's using that as a metaphor for the abuse of power. And so I'm not gonna get off on a rabbit trail about drinking and your liberty in Christ to drink or not drink, except to say that you should not be drunk with wine, uh, but you should be filled with the Holy Spirit, is what the scripture says, and to remind you of an obligation in all of our liberties, all the liberties that we might have, we are to never stumble weaker believers by forcing our liberties on them. So bear that in mind. Now, the Chaldeans who ruled Babylon, they were notorious drunkards. This is just something that was a, uh, that you understood. Uh, You know, sometimes we, we talk about different ethnic peoples, and there are certain stereotypes that attach to certain ethnicities. I almost got in trouble the other day because somebody said something about that, and I said, well, all the Italian stereotypes are true. And, and I was being a little bit tongue in cheek, And then somebody, it was on Facebook, they said, I hope you're not serious. And I thought, well, I kind of am, but I better back off a little bit. (laughs) But it wasn't just a stereotype. When you talked about the Chaldeans, one of the first things you thought about was these guys are notorious drunkards. They could be drunk, that, that, as a result of that, the Lord could talk about their being drunk on conquest and it would make sense. And so woe number one, verse six. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his? How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will not they awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. And so, The Babylonians were notorious plunderers. They went and they robbed people. They had gone to Jerusalem and they robbed the temple and they had all of the beautiful ornamentation of the temple at Jerusalem. And so God is saying, well, that's gonna come back on you and you're going to be plundered. It's interesting that the night Babylon fell during their drunken party, they had brought out the goblets they had plundered from the temple at Jerusalem and mocking God, they were drinking wine out of them. Here's the story from Daniel, Daniel 5. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Interesting. They had plundered those implements from the temple, and when they were mocking God with them, God was about to send the plunderer against them in the form of the Medes and Persians. One possible application for us, I can't pass up 
Don't we have a hard enough struggle against the flesh already? I know I do. Constant struggle against the flesh. Why get drunk so that you have fewer inhibitions to temptation? You're going to have a much harder time saying no to sin and yes to God while you're drunk uh, than while you're just filled with the Holy Spirit and sober. So be careful. Uh, You know, I talk to a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians drink. Almost everybody drinks. And and so, you know... uh, I don't drink, I used to drink before I was a Christian, I don't drink anymore, I don't like drinking, I don't think I've made any you know, uh, secret about that, but I try and be level-headed about it in the body of Christ, and I tell people, don't get drunk, and don't stumble others, and uh, more and more, I think Christians are getting drunk. I mean, they're passing that line. In fact, I was talking to a pastor online the other day, I said, when are you drunk? And he goes, well, I know, when I start feeling it. I go, well, then you're already drunk. I mean, if you're already getting a buzz, then you're drunk. I don't know how, what else to say to you. And so it's, it's a very interesting situation. I don't have, I, I can't afford to get drunk. I'm having a hard enough time struggling against sin without saying, hey, who cares? Woe number two. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house that he may set his nest on high that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Babylon thought of itself as an eagle secure in its lofty nest. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon during the Judean captivity, is going to learn something about being an eagle. Let me read you this again from Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They'll make you eat grass like oxen. Seven seasons shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And so Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as an eagle, lofty above the other nations, and God says, you're gonna have feathers and long nails for seven years, and you're gonna be able to think about this. And you know what's interesting? Nebuchadnezzar came out of that, and he got saved, and he published a tract to his entire kingdom about the God of Israel. What's also interesting, as a sidelight, Commentators always talk about Nebuchadnezzar becoming more like a werewolf during that time, and then they get off on this lycanthropy, you know, as a possible thing. Nowhere it says anything about being a wolf. It says he became like the eagle he thought himself. How would it relate to us? Well, we talk about having a nest egg, do we not? And I'm not saying it's wrong to have retirement or anything like that, but Nebuchadnezzar was a person who said, hey, I've got got my nest at, we're the top here, nothing can harm us, nothing can bother us, we've got it all together, and God says, yeah, this day your soul is required of you. And so we want to value what God values. Woe number three, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, verse 12, establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. 
The cities of the Babylonian Empire were built by the blood and sweat of enslaved peoples. Murder, bloodshed, oppression, and tyranny were the tools that built that empire. Now, the word translated iniquity summarizes this type of injustice towards others. God would judge Babylon. Those whom they enslaved to build for them are depicted as stoking the fires of the inevitable judgment upon Babylon. The Babylonians thought they were building, but their injustices would leave them burning. Future Babylon is described in Revelation 18 as trafficking, and I quote, in the bodies and souls of men. I used to wonder about that as a young Christian, and then I realized that there, this is happening today. Women and children, especially all over the world, are being sold into slavery of various types, sex slavery and other types of slavery. God is concerned that societies take care of poor, widows, children, the elderly, and so we must do what we can. Just remember that all our efforts at social justice fall short until Jesus is on the earth ruling and reigning, for only then will the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That's the answer to the world's problems. When the world can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea, and when the Lord is ruling with power, and we are ruling with him to do something about these things that is serious, that's when we will have true social justice. Woe number four, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You're filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink, and you'll be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Now those taken captive by Babylon were often forced to adopt their immoral practices and they were forced upon to bring sordid pleasure to their captors. Both figuratively and literally, they got their captives drunk in order to take sinful and perverse advantage of them. Our society today is pouring its own wine and its vintage immorality. You are bombarded with ideas and images to intoxicate you into accepting the immorality of the times. Societies all over the world, for example, are hard at work blurring gender differences, encouraging the abandonment of all biblical morality. You're seen as some kind of a backwoods rube if you hold to a biblical morality anymore. One day it's all gonna be exposed as the sordid, shameful expression of the natural man opposed to what God intended. In the meantime, this is the kind of stress and tension I've been talking about as society gets wickeder and wickeder. If the, is that a word, wickeder? More and more wicked. Uh, and we attempt to hang on to biblical morality. It's just gonna get tougher and tougher to be a Christian. Woe number five, what prophet is an image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there is in it no breath at all. Babylon was notorious for its idols. Nebuchadnezzar got into the act having a huge golden image cast of himself and demanding that everyone bow down to it. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody out in the plain of Dura was told to bow to that image at a certain, when they played certain music. And those three Hebrew boys stood there 
And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna throw you into a furnace seven times hotter than any furnace you've ever seen. You're gonna burn up. The guards took him, threw them in. The guards burned up and died. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace and he says, those three guys are still in there and there's a fourth guy in there with them. And it looks like the son of God. How do you explain that? They got him out of the furnace and, and uh, should have been enough for him. But that was before the episode on the walls where he said how great he was. Uh, and so, you know, God's always working. But those three boys in that fiery furnace, they said something very profound. They said, before they got thrown in, they said, Nebuchadnezzar, our God will save us from the fiery furnace, but if not, we don't care anyway, and we're still not gonna bow to your idol. And that, my friend, that's gonna be an attitude that Christians are gonna have to adopt if things get much worse. And if the Lord doesn't come back for us, we're just gonna have to take our stand and say, you know, the Lord's gonna deliver me from your wickedness, from your immorality. I, I'm not gonna change. But if he doesn't, it doesn't matter because I know whom I serve. And, and so that's why this book is so profound. The Bible's straightforward about the stupidity of idols. Since they're man-made, they're less than man, yet men look up to them. Is anything or anyone standing between you and a closer, deeper relationship with Jesus? Well, then it's an idol, and so just deal with it. Get rid of it. These five woes all combine to prophesy the demise of mighty Babylon both then and in the future. We know that future. When the apostle Peter realized that we know the future, he said this. It's from 2 Peter, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so Peter is saying something that we all know, but it's good to be reminded of. We live for a future meeting with Jesus Christ. There's coming a day, whether we die of natural causes or whether the rapture takes place, whatever we have to endure in the meantime, there's coming a moment when you and I will stand individually face to face with Jesus Christ. We'll look into his beautiful face We'll see the depth of his eyes, the purity of his heart, his love for us. He'll judge our lives and what we did for him. He'll get rid of all the stuff that we wouldn't want to take to heaven anyway. You know, it's like when you're moving. You ever move and you think, why am I bringing this? I just, or sometimes I've moved into houses where people have left some stuff and I'm thinking, hey, thanks a lot. This stuff should be burned, you know? And, and, and so we're, we live for that moment and for what comes after that moment. Everything leading up to it is going to fade away into obscurity. We'll remember it, but without tears. And the only thing that we'll wish is that we had spent more time living for the Lord. And so Peter says, that's what we do as Christians. We live for that future moment. And then he says something I think is so profound. He says, the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. That means that the longer God waits, more people get saved. And we're excited about that until the diagnosis comes or we get the phone call that we regret or something like that and we find ourselves suffering in this world of sin. 
And, and nothing can really balance it out. It's just the realization that, well, Lord, I lived long enough for this to happen. I live in this kind of a world now where towers are falling and people are being blown to bits and my best friend died of cancer and I have this disease and this is happening. I've lived long enough in your long suffering because thousands upon thousands and millions of people have come to Christ during that time. And I can hang with that, Lord, because I'm a justified one who lives by faith. I know what you're doing, I know what you're going to do, and one day I just wanna look at you and have you say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'll know that none of it was in vain. And so Lord, just encourage me. If this is the message, I wanna run with it. I don't wanna just keep it to myself. I don't wanna you know, uh, turn my tablet off uh, you know, and start playing games. I wanna run with this message and let everybody know that Jesus saves. Amen?